The Triathlon Show 358. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Jem Arnold. Jem is a physiotherapist, a coach and a PhD student where currently his research focus is investigating blood flow limitation of the iliac artery, which is a condition that is surprisingly common even though it's not necessarily that much talked about. Uh, so we will talk about that in the interview, but we'll also talk about NIRS, near-infrared spectroscopy, which uh, can be used to measure mu- muscle oxygen saturation, which Jem uh, is very involved with and knowledgeable in. He uses that in his uh, blood flow limitation research, but also just in general coaching and testing um, methods. So we dive deep into how using NIRS and muscle oxygenation can inform uh, things like testing, workout execution, and so on and so forth. The NIRS discussion, which is the first part of the interview and and lasts for quite long, can seem a bit technical at first. I just have to warn you. So uh, a couple of things that can help you is, first of all, you don't have to understand exactly how the technology works to understand the applications that we discuss uh, a bit further into the interview. And secondly, uh, we do get two points in the discussion where we try to clarify things to make sure everything is understandable. I'm not sure whether the order that we uh, discuss things in were necessarily absolutely ideal. That's why I'm trying to make this, uh, these notes here. But one quick note to make here to make sure that you have kind of an overview uh, perspective of how things uh, belong together is that NIRS is the technology that is used to measure muscle oxygen saturation, uh, which is uh, abbreviated SMO2. And SMO2, muscle oxygen saturation, is uh, that's what we're interested in. We're measuring it with NIRS and uh, muscle oxygen saturation is reflective of the balance between oxygen delivery and oxygen extraction. So if you can understand that little introduction, then you will definitely be able to make heads and tails of the rest of the NIRS discussion as well. And especially when it comes to the, the actual applications and the potential use cases for the technology. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka. Roka produce exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimsuits, skins, goggles, performance sunglasses, and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. If you want to go faster in the water, look to Roka's range of wetsuits. From the entry level to the top of the line wetsuits, all of them come with arms of technology and exceptional quality and comfort in the water. And Roka's tri-suits work perfectly together with the wetsuits as they too come with arms of technology uh, to really maximize your shoulder mobility for the swim. And on the bike and the run, the tri-suits are optimized for aerodynamics and comfort. Roka's range of sunglasses and prescription glasses is also packed with innovation uh, with patented technologies such as the Geeko anti-slip technology. They are ultralight and have excellent optical properties. Visit roka.com forward slash TTS for 20% off your order. And thank you to Zenate. The Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer is a unique swim bench that allows you to improve your technique, power and swim training consistency. It is a perfect tool to complement your pool and open water swimming as it allows you to do very specific power and technique work, including working on your catch and your core activation, and it makes it easier to stay consistent even when you can't go to the pool. You can even use it to do activation work before a pool or open water swim or to do swim bike brick workouts more easily. And thanks to the generous refund policy, you can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days. Check out the Senate trainer and get a special TTS bundle, including the swim bench and a bunch of Senate training plans and on-demand workouts on senatesuinter.com forward slash TTS. 
Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Jem Arnold. Welcome to the Triathlon Show, Jem. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thanks. Thanks for the, the invite, Michael, to, to come on your show. Yeah, it's uh, really a pleasure to have you. I have listened to you on some other podcasts. I have read your blog and have followed some of your stuff on, on Twitter as well. So, and, and you said that you have been listening to the podcast, so it feels like we've been following each other for, for a while now. So it's great <laughs> to get a chance to connect. Yeah, exactly. We can trade compliments. As, as I said just before, I've been listening to your show for a number of years. So, you know, it's really cool to kind of be on the, the guest list now. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's start with an introduction. Who are you and uh, what's your relation to endurance sports? Yeah, well, uh, my name's Jem Arnold. Uh, I'm a PhD student at University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. I'm currently living and working in the Netherlands on a project here that hopefully we can kind of get into. But yeah, my background is as a physiotherapist and exercise physiologist and athletic trainer as well for, for a different number of sports. Most recently, endurance sports, cycling, um, and a lot of the work that I do is with near near infrared spectroscopy and doing, you know, metabolic testing, physiological testing uh, for for athletes. And then, yeah, more more recently, as I started the PhD in the last couple of years, doing that obviously in a in a research context rather than an applied sports science. But yeah, there's a bit of kind of an applied and academic background, research and application, and. I think I think we'll get into a little bit maybe the condition that I'm studying, which is a you know a, a clinical condition, but that affects elite, highly trained endurance athletes. So it's this really nice spread of clinical and high performance. So yeah, that's me. Yeah, there there have been some high profile cases, and we'll get into that. Uh, I do want to start with what will probably be quite a long discussion before that mm. uh, about NIRS in general and and how what that is and how you use it in testing. Uh, I did have. Uh, Roger Smith from Moxie on, but that was many, many years ago now. <laughs> and uh, and I think we're doing a refresher. So can you just start with the basics? What is NIRS and uh, yeah, how, how can we use it in, totally. in testing? Yeah, yeah. I know that you've, you've, you've had a number of guests that have at least mentioned muscle oxygenation, but uh, so we can, yeah, really go down the rabbit hole and go into as much as much depth as you think your audience will, uh, will tolerate. Um, uh, NIRS and your infrared spectroscopy, it's 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 similar to, but it's different from. And I want to use, you know, like the Apple Watch or your Garmin running watch. I want to use that as a kind of a uh, an analogous device to feed off, but it's slightly different. So so near infrared spectroscopy, muscle oxygenation. We're shining a light into the tissue, so it's completely non-invasive. It's as I said, like the watch. It's a device that sits on the muscle, shines the light into the tissue. That light bounces around all of this translucent tissue, and some of the light will be resolved back at the sensor. And there's specific wavelengths of light that we're interested in. And those wavelengths are absorbed by the, the oxygen-carrying molecules in the blood, which is hemoglobin, and in the muscle, which is myoglobin. So hemoglobin, myoglobin, we can kind of think about it as a combination just of heme molecules. So the signal that we get will tell us something about uh, how much of that heme is oxygenated and how much is deoxygenated, that is bound with oxygen or not bound with oxygen. And so obviously that's quite relevant if we're looking at a skeletal muscle engaged in activity, right? We're going to be able to see something about the metabolic activity in that little local area of tissue that we're illuminating with the sensor. So in general, yeah, it's showing us, uh, uh, we'll, we'll call it muscle oxygen saturation, SMO2, but there's different names. It can be tissue oxygen saturation or whatever you want, but basically it's a percent saturation, how much of that heme 
volume is saturated with oxygen. And this has quite a high kind of dynamic range or a physiological range where it starts, oh, let's say it starts somewhere around 60%, depending on the sensor, depending on the person, of course, but yeah, somewhere around 60%. It can go all the way up to 90% and all the way down to pretty close to 0%, again, depending on some of the, the technical aspects. Um, so it's a very wide dynamic range, and that gives us a lot of variability, a lot of kind of response to understand and, and, and look at during exercise and see what the signal is telling us. So yeah, we can get into all of that. And 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 within that uh, mu muscle oxygen saturation, are, are you talking about the combination of uh, muscle myoglobin and hemoglobin in the capillaries surrounding the muscle in that tissue area? So we, we don't really, we can't really separate between those is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah, there's there's a number of studies that have tried to separate hemoglobin and myoglobin, and I think the estimates are, you know, one study will say it's seventy percent myoglobin, and the other study will say it's twenty percent myoglobin. So it kind of goes either direction. So really, for all intents and purposes, especially for the the the, the more um, recent uh, uh, portable and you know, wearable devices that we're talking about, we're really we can't differentiate the two. The one thing that we can say is that. It, uh, to, to, to oversimplify a little bit, myoglobin in the muscle tissue doesn't change. It doesn't increase with exercise. So we could be pretty confident that myoglobin stays constant. And then any change, any significant change that we're seeing during exercise is probably coming from the hemoglobin side. So it's coming from changes in blood volume and blood flow coming into that little area of tissue that we're illuminating. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, we can either say as the heme signal increases, that implies that hemoglobin volume is increasing and that might be coming from either an increase in blood volume or uh, an increase in hematocrit of the local little capillaries. So uh, broadly speaking though, we can say that it's it's kind of the blood volume, the perfusion in the area. So again, there's <laughs> there's always more nuance to these conversations, but but that's kind of where to start. And, and just to kind of lead on that point that you were talking about of, of what we're actually looking at. Yeah, that's exactly right. SMO2 is really looking at kind of the mixed capillary blood. So kind of if we think about a single capillary, we're going to have the arterial side, which is quite a high oxygen saturation, you know, 99, 98%, uh, uh, maybe going down into the low 90s at high intensity, but it's pretty much fully saturated. And along that single capillary, oxygen will be extracted out into the muscle uh, and we get to the venous end and the saturation can be very low. Uh, you know, over the length of that of that capillary oxygen extraction might be, well, upwards of 90%. So that's kind of where this gives us our our, our very large uh, physiological range of SMO2. So we're really seeing kind of this 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 spatial and temporal balance of the oxygen delivery and oxygen extracting uh, extraction in this little tissue. Oh, so so with that point, just to clarify, uh, when you see the arterial and the venous side of things, are we basically looking at? an average or or something like yeah. that <laughs> it's a good question um uh there are some good modeling studies with with you know like the the laboratory grade three hundred thousand dollar nearest equipment that are looking at this but again in general we can kind of say it's the mixed venous blood so so again we're never going to see zero percent saturation because um, um uh, even at the venous end of that single capillary that we're talking about. And especially if we then scale that up to a, you know, a, a, a full muscle tissue, it's never going to be hundred percent oxygen extracted from that, uh, uh, from that capillary system. And, and so we kind of consider it to be on the venous side. Um, 
but it is, it's not a 50-50 balance, let's say. So it's maybe um, predominantly on the Venus side, but that will, as I said, that will kind of change considering the spatial aspect um, uh, and, and, the, and, the, and the temporal aspect with metabolism. Basically, as you, you know, increase intensity, the blood flow, the capillary dilation, all of this kind of stuff is going to change, not to mention just the mechanical forces on the tissue will be squeezing and, and expanding uh, blood volume out of that capillary system. So it changes in real time. But but in yep. general, we're talking about kind of more of the venous side. At least that's helpful to conceptualize it that way. Yeah. Um, I do want to go into uh, a practical example then to illustrate how, how we actually can use the, the, this measurement and and how it behaves. But before that, just one more technical question, which is around the, the accuracy and the uh, precision of the devices in use today. So you mentioned those like top-end lab devices, yeah. but also wearable yeah. devices. So, so can you talk a little bit around uh, the differences in accuracy and uh, and yeah. precision? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so there's a wide range of of technology. Um, uh, most of the sensors that I've used are the little, relatively speaking, the little uh, portable units that are completely self-contained, and obviously, it's it's more appropriate for sport application. And then there's yeah, the, the very expensive, really technical kind of fancy nearest devices that I really want to get my hands on at some point and use. Um, so I'll talk about kind of the portable units, the the reliability, there, there's a, a bunch of different validation studies and, and looking at reliability out there for uh, a number of the sensors. I will mostly be talking about, there's kind of two sensors that I've used most of, of my experience with. One is Moxie, which you mentioned Roger was on the podcast a while ago, and I think you've had other um, uh, people on using Moxie as well. I think, uh, uh, Olaf Alexander Boo with the Norwegian yeah. triathlon. Yeah. He's a big user of Moxie. Yeah. So I think actually on that note, this yeah. uh, I'm not sure if this episode will go out before that, but I just saw an email or a social media post that Moxie will have a a, a booth at Kona, and uh, Olaf Alexander Boo will pop in there, and they will yeah. have some sort of joint joint things going on there. So if uh, yeah, listeners well. that are that are at Kona, they they might find that interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a couple of those companies. There's like Moxie VO2 Master and, and Core Temperature Sensor, I think. So yeah, yeah. that's super cool. Yeah. But yeah, that's a that's another thing. Um, so yeah, so so for the Moxie, there's a number of validation and reliability studies. And uh, one of my colleagues at uh, UBC right now, Asaf Yogev, who's also doing his PhD and working with this stuff, he is, well, we, we have done a number of experiments looking at the reliability in, in more kind of a real world setting. So looking at an actual training intervention and, and just trying to see what the day-to-day -day variability is that you might expect. And in general, and, and I can't give exact numbers because we're you know analyzing the data right now, but in general, it's something like a 10% difference in that SMO2. So plus minus 5%, you know, if, if, if it's 50% uh, one day and it's 60% the next day, it's probably not a meaningful difference. It doesn't mean your fitness has changed or fatigue has changed. But of course, as you use the devices more for a single individual, you can kind of narrow down that range and understand what the what your individual reliability is. So yeah, in general, for kind of reliability or day-to-day or, or -day variability, yeah, we're talking somewhere in that kind of 10% range. Um, for the, the other sensor that I've been using now is called Train Red, and it's a I think it's a startup within Artinus. Artinus is one of the other well-known nearest manufacturers. And it's it's I you know it's it's one of it's a new system so it also the kind of 
fancy new hardware and really high precision measurement. We're measuring at 100 hertz, so 100 samples every second. So the data quality coming out of it is really good. Um, but it hasn't. It, it doesn't have that kind of validation or reliability testing yet. Although, of course, the previous iterations of the Artinus hardware has gone through that same reliability studies. Um, oh, and I, I don't know off the top of my head exactly what those numbers are. And of course, it depends on the context. But I, I think the precision is a little bit better in Portamon, which is to say, let's say, you know, a 5% range, whereas the Moxie is about 10%. But also there's differences in the, in the actual percent, in the physiological range of the numbers that you'll get from Moxie. From Moxie, you get pretty close to that full 0 to 100%. In train red, or sorry, in 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 Portamon, which is uh, um, the previous hardware, it's a little bit more compressed. So you're seeing something more like, I don't know, let's call it twenty to eighty or thirty to eighty. So so a five percent change of that is pretty close to a ten percent change of of the larger uh, amplitude in in Moxie. Yeah, that's quite important to be aware of when you yeah. to compare your data potentially if you if you using you're using one of the systems and your friend is using the other system that uh, they're not exactly apples to apples yeah ab- absolutely and and as i said a lot of the literature especially obviously the early literature in laboratory testing is using like the big fancy multi hundred thousand dollar devices which once again it'll be kind of broadly analogous to the little portable unit that we're using but the exact numbers can certainly not be uh translated so it, it really has to be an individual application yeah. Um, all right. So then let's, oh, sorry, one more question on that uh, follow-up. In blood glucose monitoring, for example, we have seen that uh, there have been validation studies where they show that while they might make, might be quite accurate uh, in a resting state during exercise and especially intense exercise, the accuracy decreases. Do we know anything? I mean, obviously, these systems are meant to be used during training, the portable systems that we're talking about here, Moxie and Train Red. Um so, but but do we know, can we be quite confident that they're okay for use in training and still retain a yeah. certain level of accuracy? Yeah, that's a good question. That's exactly like, that's the applied question. Um, so this this kind of 10% number for MOXIE that, that comes from my colleague Asaf's work, that's during severe intensity domain. So, so you know, HIT training, high intensity interval training. Uh, so, so that's a pretty good application number to use. For some other testing that we've done with a, 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 a an incremental step test, which I think we'll get into some of the testing protocols here, there is there are certainly differences from low intensity to high intensity. But again, kind of the variability of an individual response at high intensity is always going to be greater than at low intensity. At low intensity, everyone looks fairly similar. And so the group variability is small. At high intensity, people can look quite different. The group variability is large. Therefore, the reliability or the, you know, the, the kind of um, uh, the precision of measurement is, is going to be larger. And, and again, I can't give exact numbers, but if, if we're, we're kind of talking about in the range of um, Let's call it five to ten percent at low intensity, and it would be maybe ten to fifteen percent, maybe up to twenty percent at high intensity. And we're talking about, you know, ten percent on a zero to one hundred percent kind of scale. Mm-hmm. So um, if if we assume everybody is on that scale, that's kind of yeah, that 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 chunk represents a, a, an individual variability. So hopefully that kind of gives you some applied numbers. Yeah. So then, uh, and maybe for the purpose of the this discussion, it's best if you state which system you would refer to then, because it's different if it's a zero to one hundred yeah. scale. <laughs> um, how how would you can you explain how the muscle oxygen saturation would typically behave 
in in a couple of different scenarios. So, mm-hmm. for example, for just a steady endurance uh, trait workout, and then separately we might discuss something like a hit workout or something yeah. like that. So, so explain what, what the what the signal would look like, and 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 in an ideal state, but also potentially what might be some uh, potential things that we might be looking for. That oh, uh, this is kind of uh, not what we expected, and and that's where you want might want to dig a bit deeper right. and see okay, what can we do to improve this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's quite important to kind of understand what context you're talking about with nearest, just like any other measure that we're using VO2, blood lactate, everything else, you know, the signal or the response is going to look very different in an incremental protocol, right? A ramp test or a step test, than it will in a constant workload protocol, like a, you know, steady training session or, or a, a hit workout where you have constant workload intervals. Um, yeah. If we talk about kind of low intensity, so if we're at rest, we can kind of start by talking about at rest. You know, most people will be around the same value, as I said. And let's talk about Moxie. So the kind of that zero to 100% range, I would say everyone's somewhere in that 50 to 60% range, more or less. Depends on tissue composition, depends on um, uh, pigmentation. Uh, um, but yeah, more or less in that 50, 60% range. In train red, uh, I would say it's it's pretty close to the same, Maybe maybe around more like 60 55 to 65, somewhere in there. So about the same range. Okay, low intensity, starting exercise. We're going out for a training ride. And, and let's assume you know the power is more or less constant. We're actually going to see SMO2 in both systems begin to increase at low intensity. And that's basically our warm-up effect. That's you know exercise hyperemia, whatever we kind of want to call it. Um, uh, that signal is showing that there's an increase in oxygen delivery into the tissue relative to that constant workload, that constant power output that we're performing at. So the demand is constant, but we're getting a nice warm-up effect, and so the delivery is uh, is 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 ex- in excess, is exceeding the the demand, and so therefore the SMO2 signal has a positive slope, is trending upwards, and it might get up to 70, 80, 90 percent. Um, this is very dependent on the individual and especially on the tissue composition. And, and so maybe it's worth just kind of commenting on that. Um, the signal has to go through, you know, layers of skin and adipose subcutaneous fat before it gets to muscle. And so that tissue, which is less metabolically active, which kind of behaves in a slightly different way, that contributes to the signal as well as the muscle tissue that it's coming from. And, and if you think about, okay, what happens during a warm-up? I mean, very literally, if we're warming up, we're going to have an increase in cutaneous blood flow and blood flow to the skin for thermoregulation. So that's one of these, uh, one of the components of the signal that we're seeing at low intensity is just very simply, uh, the skin is, is filling up with, with blood. And we're not going to see that skin extracting much oxygen because it's not very metabolically active. It's just about, you know, shunting blood to the skin to radiate heat. And so that's, of course, going to increase our saturation signal. So that's kind of where that low intensity signal is coming from. But of course, we know blood flow does increase to the muscle tissue as well during during low intensity. Over duration is kind of an interesting question. If we keep kind of that same, you know, moderate intensity domain, nice, easy ride, and it's a relatively constant workload. Um, SMO2, it, it won't change too much. It might kind of gradually decrease over a long duration, um, but uh, it, it stays pretty high, assuming kind of you know the environmental conditions, right? Heat and everything kind of stays constant. So it's maybe analogous to heart rate, where heart rate you'll see kind of a gradual drift, and obviously heart rate is drifting up, SMO2 is drifting down. 
Um, and it's and it's kind of you know inverse to VO2 as well. So even in, in modern intensity domain over a long period of time, you'll see a little bit of um, uh, VO2 drift, which is probably related to you know hydration and and kind of related to the same aspects of of cardiac drift and heart rate. And and so SMO2 will kind of show the same thing. But uh, yeah, there's not much change at low intensity with with duration. Just to, to uh, a pause here, you mentioned supply and demand, and I think that's a pretty useful analogy when we're talking about NIRS. So yeah. you mentioned that during the warm-up effect being the, uh, the oxygen saturation goes up, uh, and that's that's indicative of demand being being higher. Uh, sorry, demand being lower than supply. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So 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 basically, for listeners to uh, completely understand this, so so demand would be. The, how much oxygen the muscles actually need and mm-hmm. supply would be how much how much oxygen is delivered to, yeah. to the tissue uh, so, yeah exactly so. smo2 is basically the balance of demand and supply or or um, uh, oxygen delivery oxygen extraction and and it's important thing to consider because we're seeing just like blood lactate is kind of the the net result of whatever lactate is being produced and whatever lactate is being cleared and oxidized, and we see kind of the leftover, the net result of those two processes, it's kind of the same analogy with, with NIRS. SMO2 is the balance of the oxygen delivery coming into that little area of, of tissue and the oxygen being extracted from that area. And so if delivery is greater than extraction, SMO2 will tend to go up. And vice versa, if extraction is greater than delivery, SMO2 will go down. So we can certainly use this as kind of a directional um, indication of, of yeah, yeah, you know, what's going on with those two underlying components. But we can't say the the absolute magnitude of, of blood flow or oxygen delivery and and you know muscle oxygen uptake. We're just looking at the relative difference between the two. So SMO2 increasing, you know, more steeply, like in the recovery after a high intensity interval. Well, that implies that there's a lot more blood flow, a lot more delivery, oxygen delivery coming in than there is oxygen extraction. So, so maybe that kind of yeah clears yeah. up kind of how much we can say about the the underlying components, um, and and kind of leads into you know the high intensity responses because obviously at high intensity these the delivery and extraction are going to be let's say changing at larger rates between you know rest and and high intensity exercise. Yeah, does that kind yeah. of make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So let's move into that. Then the, well, we can take both the heavy intensity domain and the, and the severe intensity domain. Yeah. I'll, I'll start with, so we, we've talked about kind of the moderate and I'll, I'll flip over to, to severe and then we can fill in the gap into heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, severe intensity domain. So if we're doing a high intensity uh, interval training type thing, yeah, we can consider three phases of an interval. We can consider the onset kinetics, which is you're going from rest to Ah, whatever, 250, 300 watts. Uh, and what we're going to see then is, of course, we impose this sudden increase in demand for energy to meet that new power output. And so that energy is going to try to be supplied by oxygen instantaneously, more or less. And so we're going to see this very quick deoxygenation or desaturation uh, that is a negative, a sharp negative downward slope in SMO2 during the first, call it, 60, 90 seconds up to 120 seconds. And so this is kind of the inverse of VO2 of, you know, pulmonary gas exchange, VO2 kinetics in that first 90 seconds or so, VO2 increases very quickly onset kinetics, SMO2 decreases. Then we get into this 
steady state or relative steady state because in severe domain we know it's it's not exactly steady but uh we're in yeah kind of a pseudo steady state where smo2 will kind of potentially balance out and i want to come back to that point because sometimes in in certain uh response profiles it 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 doesn't come to a balance it continues to decline quite sharply but if we kind of in general, I would say more of the time we're going to see SMO2 kind of balance out where maybe there's a little bit of a negative slope, but you know it's a relative plateau. It's certainly not as sharp as the initial onset kinetics. And, 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 and that will proceed to a minimum. Um, you know, if we're going to exhaustion in this interval, then certainly SMO2 is going to be at the minimum at, at maximum performance. But even in a submax, right, we're of course we're going to kind of continue to deoxygenate until the end of our interval, and then we stop exercising. That energy demand of locomotor work has suddenly uh, been reduced. Uh, but in the background, and this is where it's useful to start thinking about these components, we take away that energy demand. So we take away the demand for oxygen to be extracted to produce energy to to, to fuel the contractile work. But delivery, oxygen delivery in the background has been you know ramped up that flywheel is going during exercise and so it kind of remains high or at least the difference now oxygen extraction declines faster than oxygen delivery and so the net result is we have more delivery and therefore this reoxygenation this steep upward slope in in smo2 during that recovery that first again let's call it 30 or 60 seconds of uh recovery from from exercise yeah that makes makes complete sense and then so, uh, maybe we go into the the heavy intensity domain. If- yeah. So so let's let's I the the let's talk about kind of the response profiles because again there's there can be two or or a spectrum uh, between two extremes of of responses and a good way to think about it is in a um, uh, a progressive step test. So that's why I kind of want you know we can think about low intensity continuous training. We kind of talked about that. Uh, uh, high intensity interval training. We talked about those. Uh, kind of three phases of, of of a single interval. And then if we think about a progressive step test, just like you would do for lactate, let's call it, you know, five minute work stages, um, uh, minimum of three. And we talked about why, because because onset kinetics takes, you know, 90 seconds, two minutes or so. So you want to have a little bit of a period of that pseudo steady state. So at low intensity, modern intensity domain, we talked about SMO2 will generally gradually increase during work. In the first response profile that I'll talk about, and uh, the names are a little bit, you know, we're making it up as we go along here, but we can call it like a linear profile or a monotonic profile. But basically what, what monotonic means is as workload increases at each work stage, SMO2 in this context is always going to be lower. So a monotonic response means it doesn't increase and then decrease, it's constantly decreasing. But that's across stages. So this first linear monotonic profile means that at low intensities during the work stage, you're still going to see a slight increase in SMO2 because of the what we talked about, delivery is increasing, you're warming up. But as you go to the next stage, there's a greater drop in SMO2 than you increased during the prior stage, if that makes sense. So increasing within yes. stage, but it's still decreasing across stages. And, and why would that be exactly? Um, well, I guess it depends on on the the work stages, but basically, you know, in the protocols that we're using, uh, where it's maybe be uh, six or seven stages from you know zero to, to to maximum, you'll have kind of two stages, maybe three stages in moderate intensity domain, and it just means the 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 
the response in SMO2 to the increase in work from stage one to stage two causes a greater deoxygenation than you get from the warm-up effect in stage one. So, and, yeah, and, again, and, the war, and the warm-up effect would be that would you have a, an actual break between these stages? So that's why you would see a warm-up effect also in subsequent stages in stage two and stage three and so on. That's potentially part of it. And yeah, the protocol we use does have, it's, it's an intermittent step protocol. So we have a one minute break in between these five minute intervals. But even just considering, even if it's a continuous without any break, uh, if we're just considering where is the SMO2 at that steady state during, you know, the last couple minutes of each work stage, that's kind of where we're talking about where, um, you know, there's an, there's, a, there's an upward slope, but it's a very small slope it's not very steep yep. so that when you move to the next work stage and your workload has increased and your demand for energy and your demand for oxygen has increased you're still going to be lower in this monotonic linear profile mm -hmm. yeah so in this profile another way to think about it is um uh let's say let's say flat down flat across moderate heavy and severe intensity domain so again moderate domain it's decreasing but not very not very sharply in the heavy intensity domain, and I'm finally getting to your question about what goes on in heavy, in this protocol, it's decreasing faster, deoxygenated faster across work stages. So going from one work stage in heavy domain to the next work stage still in heavy domain, there's kind of a, you know, a, a larger um, uh, deoxygenation, a larger desaturation of SMO2. And then within those heavy domain stages, the slope will be flat to a little bit negative. More or less. So within stage, flat, a little bit negative. Across stages, definitely negative, right? Definitely deoxygenating. And then, and we're still talking about this first profile, this, this response profile. By the time the athlete gets to critical power FTP, maximum metabolic steady state, whatever we want to call it, right? That transition from heavy to severe intensity domain, they're already going to be quite near their SMO2 minimum, their physiological minimum, whether that's zero or 20%, you know, depending on the sensor and depending on they themselves. So if they're already near minimum, it means they can't continue to deoxygenate. And so that's where we kind of get into this, this second flat part of the trend. So flat in moderate, down in heavy, and then flat again in uh, severe intensity domain. And, mm -hmm. and you know, it's, it's not quite flat, but, but, but generally speaking, that's kind of it. So that's the first response profile. The second, the other side of the spectrum, I think is probably easier to describe. I think this is great, by the way, because it gives us a picture of, okay, how can you actually use the device and apply it? So yeah, yeah. that's exactly it. And I want to talk about kind of why this matters for application, yeah. but, but let's, yeah. So this, this second response profile is, yeah, easier to describe. And the language you're using is curvilinear or non-monotonic or parabolic. So if we think of a parabola, it's an upside down U shaped. It's a little bit easier to, to visualize. In this profile, what we're seeing at low intensity, moderate intensity domain is now we're seeing, you know, the same increase during the work stage, but now that increase is large enough so that at the subsequent work stage, you've increased the workload, the SMO2 is now higher. So it's higher at stage two and let's say stage three than where you started in stage one or at rest. So you reach your kind of maximum SMO2 somewhere somewhere around ventilatory threshold one, lactate threshold one, you know, not exactly, but it's somewhere around there. And then in the heavy domain in this profile, um, it's kind of more of a plateau. So once again, within work, as I said, for the first response profile, the SMO2 slope is pretty much flat, but now we're at a maximum and we're kind of plateaued across those heavy domain work. That's a top of our inverted U. 
Then we get into severe intensity domain. And now we're at the top of our dynamic range. So we do have this whole um, amplitude with which to deoxygenate. And so now we're going to see a steep, sharp downward slope deoxygenating across severe intensity to minimum at uh, you know task intolerance at, at VO2 peak. So we have this kind of more linear response where it's pretty much decreasing across all work stages. And we have this curvilinear or parabolic response where it's increasing at low intensity, plateau at intermediate intensity and, and declining at high intensity. So very different. And, and in general, you know, of course, it's a spectrum, but, but I think in general, and we're trying to you know, investigate what are the characteristics that put a person into either one of these kind of boxes. But in general, it tends to be profile one will be fitter, leaner at the muscle that we're investigating and, and, and tends to be more males. And then profile two will be, again, on average, less fit, less lean and more females. But the sex difference there, it, I, I don't think it's a true sex difference. I think it's just probably correlated to uh, especially the tissue composition, because even, you know, super highly trained, super fit females will tend to have more fat distribution on their thighs than, than, than male athletes. And so it's, a, you know, it, it's, it's, are we just seeing again, that kind of that increase in oxygenation in the skin and, and adipose layers in the female, then we're seeing in the male. And is that contributing to the increase in SMO2? Does, does that make sense? Cause it's kind of tying it makes, together this yeah. aspect of the warmup yeah. effect and the different response profiles. And then we have fitness differences and tissue composition differences. There's a lot of nuance here. Yeah, no, it it does make sense, uh, definitely. Um, and but, and what would what would the the implication be? Let's say if we have uh, uh, let let's say if we ha if we have two athletes that, for argument's sake, they have a similar body composition and they are, they are both male, for example, and but they have those two different profiles. Uh, if uh, first of all, can that be the case? And and if that's yeah. the case, what what would the what would the implication be? What does it mean in terms of what's going on under the hood of these yeah. two athletes? Yeah, totally. Like, absolutely. I said it, it tends to be these kind of categories of, you know, fitness level um, or training status, um, uh, leanness, let's say, or adipose tissue, and and then sex, which I think is part of that adipose tissue story. But absolutely, like we see this curvilinear response in, well, we had a we had a male athlete who was, you know, VO2 max was was 70 plus. Uh, so, so, you know, it's, yeah, it's not exclusive, but it's just kind of those trends. So yeah, if we kind of take, you know, the same subject, you, you or me, and, and, and for whatever reason, we're showing two different response profiles. The, the application is if, if I tell that, that, that's profile two athlete, the curvilinear, uh, uh, response athlete, if I say, okay, let's get you to kind of an SMO2 maximum, and we're just doing a nice low intensity training ride and we want oxygen delivery to be maximum, right? We want like substrate and, and, and nutrient flow to be maximum. And it's just a nice steady training ride. And we say, you're just trying to keep SMO2 more or less as high as you know you comfortably can. Perfect. That gives them a target that, as I said, is going to be somewhere around that, let's say the high end of, of modern intensity domain. So that seems like an appropriate training prescription. With the first profile, with this monotonic response, remember monotonic means uh, uh, at every increase in power, SMO2 will tend to decrease. So if we give them the same prescription and saying, just keep SMO2 high, well, that you know, workload is going to trend to zero and they're going to end up walking, which uh, well, may not be a bad idea. I mean, maybe that's a, still a good you know, kind of prescription for them. Um, but, but obviously, they'll be for performing at a very different relative intensity to you know, the, the second profile athlete. 
So it, it certainly has implications. And then if we think about high intensity, again, for this kind of curvilinear second profile athlete, where when they're performing these high intensity work intervals, SMO2 is going to be negatively sloping towards a minimum. So maybe we can use that to, um, to kind of modulate our intensity and our duration, right? Okay, we want, I don't know, six minute intervals. So let's kind of keep that slope shallow enough so that we know you're not going to bottom out, you're not going to reach task failure before six minutes, and we can kind of play with that power. And it all works out well. The first profile athlete, the linear profile athlete that I mentioned, they're kind of already at minimum at critical power. So we can't really, you know, there's no, there's no slope there to predict the time to exhaustion at a severe intensity power, at a severe intensity workload. So we really can't kind of use, at least in the VL muscle, which we're kind of talking about here, the primary locomotor muscle in cycling, we can't use that as an indicator to program the high intensity intervals. So yeah, big implication to, to kind of, you know, do this preliminary baseline testing, see how the athlete responds in this, you know, that's the point of an incremental test to see the intensity dependent response. And then we can use that to inform their training, depending on kind of which of these profiles they more fall into. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm jump, jumping a bit back and forth in my list of questions that you also have here, as, as you can see, but I just find that this is, yeah, it's all really interesting and, and mm -hmm. just trying to take the next logical step uh, in terms of the questions. But I guess we can move into, okay, so we discussed already a little bit around the testing, or you said that what that the protocol is an uh, intermittent mm -hmm. stage test. So so can you describe that a bit more and uh, yeah. how, how would you use that test then to uh, profile an athlete and then potentially inform right. their training? Yeah, totally. So uh, as I said, I think, you know, every, uh, no matter what we're measuring, blood lactate, VO2 or NIRS, it's, it's protocol specific. We have to understand what the actual protocol, the context in which we're measuring this in order to understand what the response is telling us. So yeah, muscle oxygenation is no different. Um, most of the literature I would say uses just a standard, you know, eight to 12 minute continuous ramp test where workload is increasing at whatever 25 or 30 Watts per minute. Um, and, and we know where that comes from, right? That comes from VO2 max testing, that comes from ventilatory thresholds. So it makes sense that we would just use that as a, as a default um, uh, protocol with NIRS. I think, and obviously I think based on other people who have developed these protocols before me, that a, a, with, with NIRS, we, we want to look at the steady state response. So I talk about, we have the onset kinetics, the steady state, and then the recovery kinetics. In an incremental ramp protocol, we really only see, it's like a continuous onset kinetics. The, the, the response, VO2, lactate, NIRS, is constantly chasing the increasing workload. So we're never seeing a steady state. I think when we're looking at you know, muscle metabolic activity, I think we're interested in that steady state. Um, and so just like lactate testing, where you need at least a three-minute or a five-minute or longer stage in which lactate kind of reaches a, a steady baseline for the same reason we want to look at that with near so we have yeah a multi-stage you know incremental step test and then as i said the protocol is kind of you know introduced a, a one minute rest just an arbitrary number kind of nice round number one minute rest and that's to show us as i've mentioned the reoxygenation response to the prior workload so we have this workload we let's think about the underlying via uh, uh, uh O2 delivery and O2 extraction, those kind of reach a balance and SMO2 is the product of the balance. And so we see what that looks like for a couple of minutes. And then we take away the workload, we take away the oxygen extraction stimulus, and we see the, re the, the reoxygenation response, which is kind of a proxy for oxygen delivery. It's not exactly oxygen delivery, but it's a proxy for it. So we can see now how um, the recovery response 
And then of course, the onset to the next interval progress in an intensity dependent manner across stages. So yeah, we, you know, we call it 5-1. There's uh, 5-1-5 where you repeat the, the five minute workout at the same intensity and then you move up intensity. It, it all kinds of works, but it's basically a yeah, five minute work interval, one minute rest. Um, and, and we've been using that for you know, training zone prescription and uh, description of intensity domains. Um, uh, and and uh, yeah, we're, we're finding kind of, you know, good applied results, but we're still trying to figure out, and obviously from a research perspective, trying to validate what those responses look like. So we have a, a study in the work, we have a manuscript in the work where we've looked at this 5-1 test with VO2, lactate, and NIRS, and hopefully we'll be able, and heart rate, of course, and power, cadence, everything else, <laughs> and we'll be able to uh, make some associations or, or kind of describe at least the, the profiles across these three phases, which is onset kinetics, steady work, steady state and recovery kinetics, um, in, in this protocol. And then we actually, we had the athletes, uh, perform this protocol twice. So we have a reliability, a, a, a test retest reliability component of that mm. as well. So that, yeah, I think that's really, that's really interesting. Yeah. Can, you, can you tell us more about that? How, how the nearest, uh, how it relates to VO2 and, uh, hmm. yeah, if, if it's, uh, yeah, if it's possible, even though it's not published yet. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Um, uh, yeah, again, I don't have exact numbers cause we're doing the analysis, but it, well, I, I can very easily, the, the SMO2 reliability is greater than that is to say worse than the vo2 reliability so vo2 is very reliable we kind of you know we know those numbers blood lactate on the other hand i think it's going to be pretty close i think i think smo2 is going to have maybe better reliability but certainly kind of in that ballpark of lactate because lactate is very it's so variable and you only get one data point for each stage versus you know breath by breath for vo2 and and a, a, a continuous real-time measure for for uh muscle oxygenation so yeah, as I, you know, the numbers that I gave you before, where let's call it kind of five to 10% at low intensity, and that's day to day variability in, in SMO2 at the VL. And uh, I think I said uh, 10 to 15, or maybe 10 to 20, if we widen that range at high intensity, that's kind of, this is the study where, where those numbers are coming from. And those are really preliminary just off the top of my head. So take it worth a grain of salt. But, but it, you know, it does mean that if you kind of just put a sensor on uh, day one to day two for your everyday training, Again, you kind of have to consider where the sources of uncertainty are coming from. If you see a 10% change, if you see a 5% change, if you see a 15% change at high intensity, kind of questioning, is that meaningful or not? And, and, and as I said before, that's where the, um, well, the coach knowing the athlete and of course the athlete knowing themselves will be able to say, uh, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's 10% lower today and I feel fatigued. So yep, that matches up and my heart rate's a little bit higher and, you know, Right, tying together all of these sources of data. So on an individual level, that's important. Um, in the in the research, obviously, we kind of have to look at a group level and try to quantify that that expected level of uncertainty or or uh, variability. Yeah, well, did you did you assess in the data uh, collection uh, anything regarding where the let's call it the well the the, the different thresholds, so the ventilatory thresholds uh, sit versus the lactate thresholds, and yeah. and if you want to call it the uh, the turn points or thresholds of yeah. the oxygenation <laughs> signal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's one of the things. That's not going to be the first study that we talk about because the first study will be a bit more descriptive, talking about these response profiles and again the general reliability. But yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest applications of NIRS in the literature is is looking at 
Um, I'm going to call it the deoxygenation breakpoint. It has a couple other names, the uh, you know uh, deoxygenation plateau or the HHB plateau, which is deoxyhemoglobin plateau. Anyway, this is a breakpoint that broadly or is associated with critical power, FTP, VT2, LT2, MLSS, all of the other measures, you know, that second fatigue threshold. Um, and, and then we have a, an oxygenation breakpoint in NIRS that I'll call it, that may be associated with the lower breakpoint, LT1, VT1, et cetera, fat max. Um, it, it's an interesting question because this goes back to the response profiles. And, and as I said, right, in, in, uh, in that second curvilinear profile, we can say that SMO2 maximum is pretty, it's, it's somehow related, it's pretty close to VT1 or, or fat max. But in, uh, in the first response profile, it's, it's, it's not at all. It, there is no SMO2 max. SMO2 max happens in the first stage. So, you know, if we just kind of combine these profiles into a single group and we looked at the reliability or the association, the agreement between NIRS and the other profiles, we might not see a strong association, but maybe it just requires that kind of separation of these response profiles. So, so again, we're, you know, statistically thinking about the statistical power we have in this study. Uh, we'll see, we'll see what we come up with, but I think it's really interesting just from a uh, I don't know, anecdata perspective, you know, to think about. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, in, in general, and I think other work has shown this as well, there there does seem to be a deoxygenation breakpoint that is, again, broadly associated with um, uh, VT2, LT2. Um, we have another study actually that, that does show this, that, that we have published using NIRS in an incremental test. So we measured, you know, where VT1 and VT2 was. Oh, just VT2 actually for this study. We just measured VT2. And then we had NIRS at the VL, primary locomotor muscle in cycling. And we saw, yep, there was a breakpoint. But as I said, sometimes that breakpoint is, you know, the SMO2 is now flat. And sometimes it's now more steeply declining. So it, it yeah. depended a bit. Uh, and then in that study, we also looked at the deltoid, which is a obviously a non-locomotor muscle, non-priority. And in that, we also... We, <laughs> We could find a breakpoint if, if you know, if you really want to find a breakpoint, you can find a breakpoint, and and using statistical methods, obviously, and, and you know, proper analytical analytical methods. So it's not like we were just pointing at the screen, but it's a curvilinear response. The deltoid just very briefly looks more like that second response, that parabolic. So it kind of just begins to decline uh, more steeply at a certain intensity, and if we kind of look for that point of decline, yeah, it, it, it seemed to line up at a group level to VT2 or, or RCP, respiratory compensation point. Um, what we found in that paper was... Why, why would why would uh, deltoid be extracting oh, oxygen if it's not a working muscle during that's cycling the, activity? That's the question. <laughs> that's a good question. So yeah, okay, let me get into that. And then, so yeah, why are we seeing this oxygen, this this deoxygenation, this oxygen extraction happening at a deltoid, a non-locomotor, non-involved muscle? Um, part of it, first of all, is going to be, you know, at higher intensity, you're, you're going to be kind of leaning on the bars heavier, right? So you are going to be using a little bit more upper body to stabilize yourself against the lower body torque, the, against the lower body work. So there is going to be a little bit of increased muscle recruitment, which is going to drive uh, oxygen extraction. So we know that's part of it. But there are studies that have looked at this and have controlled with various methods and have basically eliminated any recruitment of, of uh, I think it was bicep in, in some of the studies, maybe deltoid, but certainly bicep. 
Uh, and so with, with EMG, so EMG on the bicep confirming that there's no increased muscle activity above rest. So there's no recruitment happening, but you still saw the same deoxygenation response. And, and so what we can kind of point to is, well, if, if there's no increase in recruitment, implying that there's no increase in oxygen demand or oxygen extraction, but SMO2 is going down, that leaves the other component, which is the oxygen delivery. And so we probably, we think that this is pointing to this systemic vasoconstriction that happens at higher intensities, where now there is less oxygen delivery coming into the muscle, so that now the balance has shifted, that the, the unchanging, let's say the existing, the pre-existing uh, oxygen extraction is now in excess because delivery has decreased. And so now we're seeing a deoxygenation response. So yep. this is a little bit of that, you know, we're looking at a hyper-local area of tissue, but by looking at the deltoid and looking at bicep and some of the other non-priority muscles, we think, and when we propose that what we're seeing is some of this systemic vasoconstriction response, which is, you know, totally normal, totally expected. So it's, it's pretty cool to be able to see that. All right. Yeah. Um, and where were we uh, before? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. The, the, uh, oh, yeah. Okay. So the important part of the study that, that we published, uh, and again, this is my colleague Asaf Yogev is the first author of this paper. Um, you know, we compared the breakpoints, the deoxygenation breakpoint at the VL and at the deltoid and the RCP, v, uh, VT2. Hmm. No lactate in that study. Um, and we said at a group level, at a, you know, the group mean there is no difference between these breakpoints. So that's great. They're the same thing. Well, no, <laughs> they're probably not because at an individual level, there is a high degree of variability. And uh, I, I think somewhere in the notes that you had, right, talking about the order effect, um, there was no consistent sequence or order. So in some athletes, we saw, I don't know, the, the VL occur first and then the ventilatory threshold and then the deltoid. And some it was you know, whatever other combination of those three. So we didn't see a consistent order effect, which suggests at an individual level, these thresholds, these breakpoints cannot be used synonymously, but there is going to be some association. So they were, you know, they were kind of ballpark. Um, but, but for us, the, the important takeaway to that was understanding the, the individual variability. So yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, as I said, right, like really interesting to understand where that that breakpoint or that transition that deoxygenation at the deltoid why it's happening and what it's a sign of but to to say oh it 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 started here first of all is 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 also it's like trying to find the point of a circle so it's a little bit you know we're making up a breakpoint and then to say okay that breakpoint is exactly where your critical power is ah we, you can't say that you know hmm. so the prescription has to appreciate these sources of uncertainty and 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 as i said you know, uh, uh, as an individual for an inv individual application, you can really kind of use that to your advantage and, and, and use that uncertainty for training prescription rather than say, rather than throw it out and just say, well, it's, you know, it's not valid. Therefore, uh, we can't use it. Yeah, let's, let's get into that. So, so if you have, you coach an athlete, they come to you for a test or, or whether it's yourself, you're doing some, some testing, um, how can you give, you can just give some, some examples of, of what has happened in the past or even theoretical examples of how you would interpret the data from, from a test like this. And it can be NIRS only or NIRS combined with gas exchange and or lactate. And, and then, yeah, how, how you take that information and make, let that inform the training prescription mm. that you then give to the athlete or yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, high intensity training, I think is easier because, Again, you know, for, for half of the athletes that, that you're going to work with, it's this second profile where, where we get this nice rapid deoxygenation response. 
And then you can really use the slope of that line or just visually looking at it in real time to, to kind of modulate again, as I said, the, the power, the, the intensity and the duration. And so, so, you know, uh, uh, what's the line training is testing, right? So if we kind of, we, we test the athlete initially in the lab, we do a baseline test, we understand, oh, that, yep, they fall into this kind of curvilinear profile. Maybe we send some sensors home with the athlete for a couple of weeks to use, um, or, you know, if we have the luxury, the athlete can come into the lab to do some of their training sessions. But basically we want to now see what SMO2, what, what NIRSA looks like during training. So you know, for this athlete that I'm thinking of, um, basically we're able to look in real time and say, okay, you see how quickly it's desaturating now probably means you don't have long at this workload. So let's start to decrease it. Let's kind of bring it in line. Let's get this SMO2 to either balance out or just for that slope to be somewhere where we can control the duration. As I said, I think, you know, if we're aiming for six minutes, let's get that, that slope and let's get the intensity down so that we kind of get into that six minute range. And now I'm going to ask the athlete, you know, I'm looking at the data. I'm going to ask the athlete to pay attention to the sensations. And of course, if they have power and, and heart rate that they can use, they can look at those numbers as well. So it's kind of triangulating this additional source of data coming from NIRS with, for me, number one priority is, is the sensation. So the athlete's kind of subjective response is, oh yeah, okay. You know, I feel the difference. I'm Oh, I'm I'm my my I'm not squeezing the quads as hard, right? There's not as much force through the legs. I can kind of maintain this. My breathing is elevated, but I'm not hyper. Whatever the cues are that this athlete can focus on, and they're telling me this, then we can use that in the subsequent training to say, hey, yeah, remember this cue. Let's aim for that, and 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 maybe the power is going to be 20 watts different day to day. But if we kind of pay attention to the cues, we see what power is at, and we have heart rate as well as another indicator you know, we can kind of, again, triangulate what we're aiming for, for high intensity. For low intensity, then it's really about the sensations, I think. Uh, you know, I, I said before, if, if we kind of put Nears on the VL and we go out for a long ride, there's there's not a lot of dynamic range that, you know, the, um, the, the level just kind of stays there. Although, and in the real world where you're, I don't know, climbing hills and, and climbing bridges in the Netherlands, there's not many hills here, but in, in Vancouver, we have some nice mountains. Uh, you will see changes in intensity. And so to be able to look in real time to see, oh yeah, SMO2 is, oh, it's a little bit lower than than I want it to be, right? I was at a nice steady level at 40%. The legs felt good at 40%. I didn't notice, I'm going uphill, I'm pushing a little bit harder. It's down to 32, 30%. And yeah, I can feel that in my legs. I'm working a bit harder. So let's scale it back a little bit and just kind of dial in the sensations, the power, the heart rate to... Um, to that new kind of guidepost that we're using SMO2. Uh, so, so that's where I've really found value in that one. And after, oh, I don't know, a, a few sessions or let's call it a week or two of using NIRS, maybe in the field, hopefully, again, training is testing. Then, you know, they send the sensors back to me, the coach, I can send them on to my next athlete, but they remember those sensations. They know kind of where they're training at. And, uh, um, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of retested every couple months or, or so. And, you know, always the retest, you're like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I'm going way too hard again. So, you know, let's kind of re-dial re in the sensations and, and the power. But I think it's just, yeah, a good way to kind of cue the sensations, pay attention to the sensations, but to get that objective, uh, let's call it biofeedback almost where you're in a training session. So yeah, very broad scope, but, but that's kind of how I approach it for the high intensity session and for the low intensity. 
Yeah, and what about uh, kind of more holistic, um, the, the holistic programming aspect or, or profiling aspect of the athlete, finding strengths and weaknesses or limiters mm-hmm. of the athlete? Can can you use it in in any way like that? For example, figuring out if an athlete might have a uh, an oxygen delivery limitation or maybe an mm-hmm. extraction limitation or or even some something else that I haven't thought about. Yeah, 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 absolutely. There's there's lots of good resources, and and I have to say, Moxie has a lot of good resources over the years that look at that um, and and some looking at nears alone and then some looking at nears in combination with with vo2 um, especially so um, maybe i can give you some links to put in the, the yeah, show notes right. yeah there's some really good resources out there um, we have definitely used nears used used moxie for um, yeah that kind of profiling that kind of okay what are the relative limitation here what are the relative strength um, uh, I've, <laughs> i think i've talked about this before but like I feel like right now I'm, I'm, you know, halfway down a fractal level where I've kind of lost the pattern and, and, you know, I thought everything made sense and now I'm digging a little bit deeper and nothing quite makes sense, but then eventually you keep digging and, and you, you re, uh, you revisualize, you recapture that pattern at the next fractal level. So I have to say, I'm kind of in the middle and, and now looking at these near signals and saying, what does it mean? Does it actually mean there's a cardiac limitation or is it, you know, something just hyper local that we're seeing? So I'm I'm less confident of my interpretation skills now than I was before, but it, certainly, as I said, right, we're seeing the balance of delivery coming in and extraction. Yes, we're seeing in a very hyper local context. It's a very small, you know, amount of tissue that we're um, um, illuminating with nears. But as I said, right, if we're looking at VL and we're looking at maybe deltoid and maybe we're looking at all oh, the paraspinal, the, the the stability muscles on the low back, we can start to see kind of what's going on around the system, which I think is quite valuable. Um, and then even tying it back into those response profiles and understanding what what is the limitation for either of those response profiles. I think very easily what we can say is the first profile that kind of reaches an SMO2 minimum and, and you know, at, at high intensity and has nowhere further to go. Um, uh, we can probably say their their ability to extract oxygen from that little area of tissue is is maxed out. You know, there's 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 nowhere left to go. There's no more oxygen to extract. Whereas the other profile athlete who is continuing to deoxygenate further all the way to um, all the way to task failure, right? So it's just getting steeper and steeper. They seem to have more delivery happening again, considering the tissue composition and everything else. So that maybe if they work on uh, oxygen extractin, they might be able to get that SMO2 lower and uh, um, you know extend that time to exhaustion a little bit further. So I think those those response profiles absolutely have uh, an aspect of phenotyping to them, where it's um, uh, you know at a, at a broad scale, where it's, it's it's general fitness and general training status and general tissue composition. But then again, accounting for all of those things, then we can go deeper and say, okay, what is the actual t- tissue uh, typology, fiber typology in that little area of the VL that we're looking at, or the RF, or wherever, and that can tell us something about um, about the athlete's phenotype. And of course, we're not working. <clears throat> excuse me, we're not working in uh, uh, you know darkness here. We we have the athlete's own report telling us. Oh, what kind of athlete are they? What what's their training history? Their sporting history, for example. What events do they like? Um, we can see their power profile. So it's you know it's it's not using Nears alone, but I think Nears gives this really insightful. I'm going to call it quasi mechanistic uh, view of of uh, of the tissue, and from that, I think we can really use it to make some statements about um, 
uh, not just the phenotype of the athlete, but uh, as I've kind of been alluding to, what kind of training or how do we prescribe training that either might address the weakness or, you know, or that we know the athlete is strong at and they're going to respond to really quickly. Yeah, and I think especially especially for for triathletes, it's uh, it can be quite easy to combine the perceptual response with with nearest data in, in that way because you uh, actually some something that that I think about quite a lot is that for a lot of uh, of triathletes, uh, it, it when you do high intensity, it it seems like they get to a point where muscle fatigue is limiting them rather than yeah. ventilation and uh, mm-hmm. and reaching it. They, they can't quite reach anywhere close to their maximum heart rate that you might get in, for example, running. And mm-hmm. of course, maximum heart rate is generally lower on the bike, but, but it, but in like very well balanced athletes, it's not that much lower. It's maybe up to five beats per minute, not not much more than that really. But you you can quite often see in in training that an athlete might not even reach near ten beats per minute from their running yeah. maximum or fifteen beats per minute. It can be quite a stark difference. So totally. and if and if you combine that with the athlete saying that okay, yeah, I feel like my yeah, I just my my muscles just give up on me, and then you you can get some near data to confirm that, and that can potentially in, inform uh, what your issues are, and or vice versa. If that's not the yeah. case, if if you're really like feeling like a uh, you, you're breathing out of your uh, out of your skin, and and yeah. the, the muscles could go on, but your your ventilation cannot. Totally. And, and that brings up like, yeah, the, the, you know, the different responses in different sports, you know, if you have someone coming into triathlon who is more experienced at either cycling or running, uh, yeah, as you say, the responses are going to be very different across modalities. And that holds true, of course, for the nearest, the muscle oxygenation response can be different. Um, I have to say most of the literature and most of my work has been in cycling, but we've definitely done a little bit of running investigation and the, the, you know, all of these response profiles and kind of all of the nuance, um, is just different. And, and again, with less experience myself, I haven't really kind of mm, uh, categorized that in my own head. But, you know, to to take the objective data in, let's say, from cycling into running is going to be one thing because we know those data are going to be different. We can't use the same heart rate number, the, the you know, heart rate target in cycling as in running for the reasons you just said. In the same way, we can't use the same nearest numbers. But if we can relate those to a sensation or to the kind of subjective experience of that intensity, that's what we can translate. And especially with swimming, obviously, uh, where we have less data to work with during swimming. I think that's that's quite important. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I was just going to f- follow up on that previous point with the the profiling that that you talked about. So just to give the listener some something specific, uh, simplified, and and uh, not not like super contextual, but but in the case where you have somebody that uh, that they they desaturate kind of well, as soon as they get to the severe domain and they don't have that they had that linear response as you talked about mm-hmm. monotonic response, then would you say that working quite a lot on kind of um, oxygen delivery through high intensity intervals might be something that that could help yeah. them whereas the yeah other- exactly like like th- it gets into that kind of philosophical question of do you train the limiters or do you train the strength or do you just train the weaknesses but but yeah. for me yeah I, I think if if we're seeing an athlete kind of at minimum already at you know whatever their critical power is um, I think there's a lot of room there to work kind of let's say as hard as possible while maintaining SMO2 above that minimum. Mm. And, and I think basically what we're saying is, um, uh, uh, you know, once SMO2 is at minimum, 
it's hard to say exactly this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make super broad stroke statements right now, and I'm probably gonna regret it. But you know, once that SMO2 is at minimum, beyond that, the excess work, the increases in workload is coming from more predominantly anaerobic, you know, substrate resources, right? The oxygen is tapped out. So if we can keep that oxygenation just above minimum, still pretty low, but just above minimum, and get that athlete working for a longer period of time where VO2 kinetics, where, where, where heart rate and respiration and VO2 are elevated for some long period of time, and I do think based on some you know good meta-analyses recently that some other colleagues have done, duration is a large component here. So it's just kind of time of exposure to this relatively high intensity, but intensity, as long as we're within that severe domain, doesn't matter as much. And probably that statement is even more true for this athlete that I'm talking about where they're already at minimum. So, you know, um, maybe they're technically working at 95% of their tested CP, but based on the nearest response, we can say, yeah, no, that's, that's, you're, you're there, you're at on target. This is high intensity interval yeah. training for you. So yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a good way to uh, apply you're, it. You're, you're, you might be referring to the work by Michael Rosenblatt, your compatriot. Yeah. Oh, he was yeah. on your show. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. And, and that that finding has definitely influenced how how I program my yeah, interval so. training, uh, and as, especially with those more uh, the way I look at it, more diesel type athletes. You, mm -hmm. you don't you don't have to go high above critical power necessarily. Just high yeah. enough that you that you have the the margin of error and uncertainty that you know that you are in that severe domain. And, right. And and, and very and quickly the the opposite of that is like um you know sprint interval training which which uh, Michael Rosenblatt has also uh studied and and some other authors have have looked at as well. You know, this is that like oh it could be as short as 5 seconds but let's call it a 20 second just maximal all out intensity where of course, oxygenation is going to just plummet to the floor. And so maybe for these other, these second profile, curvilinear, parabolic profile athletes where they have more difficulty extracting and getting SMO2 low, the goal, of course, is not in and of itself to get SMO2 low, but the goal is, is to um, kind of expose the tissue to that stimulus. And so, yeah, SIT is, is potentially for them a good way to get that, that stimulus that maybe hits their limiter or their weakness. Oh yeah, that's that's an inter that's interesting uh, yeah. because I was thinking that for for that profile, y you would want to do a lot of low intensity training. But actually, that could be very well be combined with sit, of course. So uh, totally, yeah. In sit, it's what 20, 20 seconds or thirty seconds, and at least a five yeah. minute recovery interval in between. Or I think yeah. uh, uh, Ronestad and and Almquist um, uh, 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 have, have you know done work in the long low intensity bout, throwing in a sprint here and there, and that's always yeah. you know I always love doing that. So yeah, there's, yeah. There's, lots of good application there yeah um i think we've just about spent uh, as much time well one more question that i yeah, yeah. have to ask is the more of the hardware side so again we mentioned mm. two two wearables that are available on the market the moxie and the uh what was it red train Sport? red train red, the other train one. red and it's kind yeah. of artinus portamon is is uh, more commonly again it's, it's been around for a while but uh yeah right now at least to my awareness i would say the two portable devices that are most accessible and and both quite yeah quite i don't know well established let's say are um uh, moxie has been around for years again has a lot of research with it a lot of validation and a lot of use in practice as we talked about the norwegian uh all of their sports i think are using it was used in nike breaking too you know all kinds of application and then train red is let's call it an updated hardware on what used to be Portamon, but it's it's a similar form factor. These are very small devices, the size of you know a Garmin head unit, um, and they just go right on your muscle, whatever muscle you're using. Um, I would say the Train Red 
has more promising hardware just because it's a newer system. Um, uh, you know, again, we're, we're looking at, we're, we're using a hundred Hertz measurement uh, sampling frequency right now, which is fantastic. And we can see all kinds of little effects. I mean, we can easily see the, the effect of cadence during cycling. Um, uh, anyways, very promising hardware, but I'd say Moxie and train red and, for triathlon, now that I think about it, Train Red is definitely not waterproof, at least yet in in the hardware that we have. Moxie Moxie Five, which is the newer version that they have, I am ninety percent confident. Maybe want to check this, but I'm pretty sure it is waterproof. So that could be a big factor if if you do want to use Nears in swimming. I know of one study I can think of that used Nears in swimming, but it actually used the Portamon with custom waterproofing so that complicates things again but in general you know if you absolutely have to have nearest in swimming moxie is uh as far as i know right now the only portable unit that is waterproof i believe that the i checked this uh, a week or so ago and i believe the uh the moxie is a bit more expensive uh but mm. I, may, I may be wrong but that's, that's yeah the, i don't know exactly wrong. now especially since usd and 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 euros yeah. are i don't know what they are right now um and and train red is still in the process of releasing so i don't know if they've even finalized their price so i don't want to say anything about that um but they're they're close but but yeah moxie may be a little bit yeah. more expensive at this point yeah and and we're uh, talking about kind of the uh you can maybe tell me better but it's like 600 I, to 800 yeah i think range. i think that's what moxie being about 800 800 mid 800 us dollars which US? would be pretty much the same in euros right now yeah. and and uh the uh sorry train red was yeah. that no <laughs> that uh, i keep forgetting the name it was in the <laughs> mid 600s or so euro okay. so similar, similar dollars right right now if if i recall correctly yeah um, that sounds about right but to follow up on that uh just uh lastly on nears uh, for for whom might you recommend considering uh purchasing a nears mm. equipment Good question, because I know, you know, the, the manufacturers want to say, oh, everybody, everybody should have a near system. I don't think so. Um, uh, certainly, there'll be athletes who, who love the data and who have the ability to spend the time to invest the time to understand the data, turn that data into information and apply that information to their training. But not everyone has that time or resources or, or inclination to do so. So how I kind of picture this working, and I've done a little bit of this myself with the athletes I've worked in, worked with, is it, you know it's 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 like the the hub and spoke model where where I as the coach have a number of sensors, athletes, right? We kind of talked about this. We'll come in to do a baseline test in the lab, so we get to see that whole kind of establish that profile, and then we send the athlete off with a number of sensors, one, two, three, however mus- many muscles we want to look at, and they use it for a short period of time, a couple of weeks in their everyday training. And so now we have a communication back and forth where the athlete is paying attention to the sensations. They're looking at heart rate and power, which they have all the time, let's say, or in running, they're looking at pace and heart rate. Um, and, and they're feeding all of those data back to me, the coach, and I can take the time to interpret the nearest in combination with everything else, in combination, especially with the subjective report, the sensations, and we can use that to dial in the athlete's training during that two-week period and then just continue that training after that two-week period where I get the sensors back and I now can, you know, hand them off to another athlete. So that's that's kind of how I see it. But but again, there's there 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 is use for everyday training, let's say. Um, 
and and especially if 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 you're someone like me who you know I'm experimenting all the time. I don't train anymore. I just go into the lab and and tinker around with with stuff on myself in the great tradition of researchers self experimenting. Um, there's certainly an aspect of of being able to use nears and and you know. Uh, ask a question in real time and look at the response and see what happens to answer that question in real time. But I don't think it's necessary for every athlete for everyday training. So there you yeah. go. Yeah, no, that makes makes perfect sense. And uh, with that, let's move into the other topic. So you mentioned that you're you're working on iliac artery flow limitation, mm-hmm. uh, which is the yeah the condition that has been uh, quite prominently in media, I think, in, in recent years with some high-profile yeah. cases of, of high-level athletes. Can you, well, first explain what, what is iliac artery flow limitation? Yeah, and, totally. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, this, <laughs> this is my PhD work is on this topic. All of the kind of metabolic testing and everything else is just in service of understanding flow limitation. So, yeah, blood flow limitation of the iliac artery. You'll also see it called uh, you know external iliac artery endofibrosis. So there's, a, there's a couple of names for the same uh, condition. It's basically a condition where the iliac artery, the main artery feeding your leg, quite important for blood flow during exercise, is not able to deliver as much blood flow as is required. So we've been talking about this kind of demand supply limitation and uh, and what we how we can view that with nears. So obviously, this is a case where we could say um, uh, delivery is not physiologically able to match the demand in one leg. And it's usually one leg, but not always. And it's usually the left leg, but not always. But basically, blood flow to the leg is limited at the hip, at the pelvis where the iliac artery is. And it's for a variety of reasons. Well, let me actually, so so what happens, obviously, so during an exercise bout, if blood flow is not able to increase, the tissue downstream of that becomes hypoxic and ischemic. And so it kind of uh, um, you know, all of us will get that that ischemia, that kind of burning uh, fatigue pain. But of course, in flow limitation and in, in flea, it happens earlier. It happens kind of prematurely um, and and more severely. And of course, it's progressive over time. So the sensations uh, become more severe, happening at an earlier stage, happening at a lower intensity, at a long at a shorter duration. Um, and and it and it is progressive over time. It's related to, well, we're still trying to really understand the factors, but in general terms, it's related to the body position on the bike. If you think about an aggressive aerodynamic time trial position where the knee at the top of the pedal stroke is right up at the hip, so there's a you know, very tight hip flexion, that puts a bend and potentially a kink in the artery somewhere up at the hip in that iliac artery. So just like you would kink a, uh, a garden hose, you're not going to be able to pass blood flow or, or you know, water through that as effectively. And so that causes this, this local limitation. Um, I, not everybody is susceptible. So just because you're a time trialist in that position does not make you predisposed necessarily to develop flea, flow limitation. We still kind of don't quite understand the predisposing factors, but some of the numbers suggest that, you know, as many as kind of 20% of professional cyclists may develop this at some point. So the numbers are quite high when we're thinking about, um, you know, recreational athletes, amateur athletes, of course, but it still shouldn't be the first diagnosis that we suspect, you know, because it's kind of like, well, you walk into a sports med office and say, oh, hey, doc, my leg hurts when I'm biking hard. That's kind of nonspecific. You're not going to get a, a very good response. It could be a thousand other things. So it's 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 kind of difficult to detect. 
And it's difficult to predict, but again, broadly speaking, it's related to a hip flexion position. It's related to um, uh, uh, mechanical forces on the artery from the surrounding tissue. So obviously through hip flexion, psoas muscle uh, uh, recruitment can put pressure on the artery. And then, as I said, in this bent or kinked position, um, you know, in a highly trained athlete, you're going to have a large volume of blood flow trying to get through this area of kink. So these, these, these hemodynamic forces on the interior of the artery uh, causes turbulence, uh, uh, um, uh, vascular walls, endothelium does not particularly like turbulence. And so it can become dysfunctional and start to fibrose which is to get thicker. And that's where this term endofibrosis comes from, fibrosis of the vascular wall itself. And so that's why it can be progressive over time, where maybe it starts as a functional kink or a, um, a tortuosity or a bend in the artery, and maybe that progresses into endofibrosis. Um, and, and so it's, it's, as I said, kind of in the early stages, it can be quite nonspecific and difficult to diagnose as it gets worse over time, especially as the athlete goes, goes through, you know, this is the common story goes through all of the potential diagnoses and all of the treatments and nothing is really working and the legs just getting worse and it's burning and it's sore and it's weak and there's no power and, and it feels like you're pedaling squares. This is all potentially suggestive of a flow limitation. So your PhD is, uh, what are the objectives? Are you working on better being able to diagnose FLIA at an earlier stage? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of, uh, you know, I've said a few times, it's this, it's this clinical and performance aspect. And um, we have, you know, the clinical objective is really to be able to detect this earlier and, di- and, and send the athletes for diagnosis. So I think mm-hmm. NIRS is part of that early detection story. Um, And then the research side of it is just to understand the physiological response in the condition. And, you know, those are mutually beneficial beneficial purposes. Um, The study that we're designing and about to execute right now is, you know, we're we're looking at uh, both of these protocols that I've been talking about, right? The ramp incremental and and the incremental step test using nearest, using VO2, using very high precision pedal power and and power balance measurement. So just trying to get an understanding of what the performance and the physiological response looks like across intensity in healthy athletes and in flow limited athletes to try to then differentiate those responses. And then can we use some of those devices, whether it's pedal power balance or whether it's nearest or something else um, to, to, to detect this at an earlier stage outside of the vascular specialist office. That's kind of the key because the diagnosis will probably continue to be a a very highly specialized process. But if we can get athletes in a team environment or or athletes who who are coming to me as a physiologist in a lab somewhere, and and, and if we can do a screening test, or if we're using NIRS to dial in their thresholds and do all of this that we've been talking about, but then incidentally, if we see whether it's an asymmetry or some kind of indication of um, um, imbalance, then can we just raise that red flag and send them for further investigation? So that's, mm. that's, that's really my, my global purpose. And then there's kind of the physio, physiotherapy aspect, which is, um, uh, you know, right now there are not a lot of treatment options for this. And, and you talked about the high profile professional athletes who have gone through the surgery 
Uh, Taylor Wiles is one who just went through it. She's been quite public. There's some uh, uh, articles about her recently. And there's, there's, yeah, there's quite a lot of athletes. And especially at this time of year in September and October, this is, you know, end of the season, this is where athletes go into, uh, to have the surgery done. Um, there's really not a lot of treatment options other than surgery at this point. And so I, I really feel strongly that there needs to, we, we need to kind of fill in the gaps for conservative treatment, whether it's rehabilitation, prehabilitation, bike fit, uh, training protocols, physiotherapy exercises, you know, try to find something to, first of all, detect it earlier, then apply conservative treatment that can hopefully keep athletes from having to go through the surgery. Because that's kind of, you know, the goal of, of uh, I, mean, I don't know, functional athlete care is to, you know, minimize surgical interventions. So it's a, yeah, <laughs> big project any, when I say it all like that. <laughs> it definitely sounds like <laughs> that. Uh, do, do you have any numbers on the success rate for surgical intervention? Um, not exactly, but really promising is that, you know, as we speak, like I just got an email this morning with another manuscript that my colleagues here have sent me to, to edit in English. Um, it, it's coming. It's coming out. And, and long-term results um, are, are coming out quite soon. We're talking, you know, 10 years plus follow-up on some patients who are, you know, had the surgery performed in, in the early 2000s. I will say in general, there, there are data out there. Um, it's a lot of case series out there right now. So a small group or a single uh, patient who has gone through the process and maybe followed up to kind of a two or four year period. Um, so, so again, not to kind of preempt the, the the results that are coming out formally quite soon, but the, the long-term outcomes are, are predominantly positive, um, which is, which is great. Um, uh, but, but again, just like there, there's no other option. So, you know, can we say, can we, can we kind of compare surgery to conservative treatment would be, would yeah. be a potential option. Um, and, and there's all, you know, this is vascular surgery. So there's always, um, risks, but again, for professional athletes, especially at this point where, yeah, the options are either, well, stop participating in your sport. That's not an option really for, for professionals or undergo surgery. Yes. The surgical outcomes are predominantly positive. And for the detection me methods that you're uh, investigating, do you have any preliminary data or anecdata data so far that you can share? I have, well, hmm, luckily slash unluckily, I have this condition myself. So I'm speaking not just as a, you know, a clinician and a researcher, but as a patient who has gone through this process as well. Obviously, that's what kind of um, uh, motivated me to get into this uh, area. So as I said before, in the, in the grand tradition of scientists self-experimenting, I have a lot of anecdata on myself, but that's only one subject. And again, we're still trying to understand the, 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 the variability, as I've been talking about, the variability of this condition. So that's why I'm here in the Netherlands to actually see all of these athletes who are coming to this center. And now that I've spent a summer seeing different athletes and trying to understand, again, the range of variability, um, it, it uh, you know, in some respects, it gives me more confidence, of course, that, that we can use some of these early detection methods. In another, uh, uh, in another, on the other hand, there's a lot of variability and there's a lot of like paradoxical responses because when you're talking about a condition that is progressive over years, you start to develop com uh, com uh, uh, compensatory responses. And, and, and so it's not as easy as to say, oh, yep, left leg is weak. It's producing less power and it's deoxygenating faster. And, you know, that's that. It can be not as simple. And, and you know, with nearest again, we're only looking at a very small area of the tissue. So lots of work left to be done um uh 
but but I think, yeah, it's going to start with kind of raising awareness of this as a potential diagnosis, differential diagnosis for amateur recreational athletes, for athletes to kind of raise awareness among themselves. But of course, not just that, but to have oh coaches and, and team management and kind of athlete care providers to be aware of this as well and to kind of raise that red flag when it's when it's deemed appropriate. Yeah. Do, do you have any other uh, really important points about FLIA that you want to convey here uh, and talk about that we have missed? Yeah. Or haven't talked about? I, I, think, I think very, like, I kind of described the symptoms and it's very nonspecific. You know, everyone's going to say, oh, yeah, my leg burns when I go too hard. But if you do have these kind of characteristic, you know, burning kind of tightness pain, um, um, usually in the quadricep, it can be in the calf and even up in the glutes as well. Again, it's coming on at maybe a lower power or a lower intensity than you would expect. It's usually one leg. So maybe the other leg feels totally fine. And it's just that, or maybe you feel totally fine in general, but just the leg is painful. Uh, one of the other characteristics is it, it resolves quite quickly. The symptoms go away quite quickly with rest. So, you know, you come to the end of your interval and within a few minutes, the pain has subsided, the acute symptoms have subsided. And, and especially for those athletes who have gone through a process of investigation with no luck looking, you know, looking at biomechanics and bike fit and other injuries and everything else, and it's still there, um, I, I would really recommend there's a, a link that, that hopefully I can give you, you can put in the show notes yeah. to go through a very simple self-check questionnaire. And it just basically does what I've just done. It describes the symptoms and says, hey, if this sounds familiar, maybe it's worth looking into and, and it can point you to some resources. So I think that's the place to start for athletes, um, for uh, athlete care providers. Um, again, there's some literature out there already. There's more literature coming out. There's consensus statements. And of course, in my own work, I hope to have more kind of democratized information, infographics, whatever. I have to say, I don't have much of that right now. But uh, yeah, I can give you some resources for the clinicians to to go investigate. Yeah, no, that would be excellent. And and final question. Um, I'm not sure if you have ever experimented with blood flow occlusion training. I'm just curious, might yeah. <laughs> it feel similar to blood flow occlusion training or not? <laughs> yeah, it's it's like you're always doing blood flow occlusion training and you can't get rid of it. Um, yeah. I, I, I haven't experimented with it. Um, I understand it is quite promising. I, I can't say I'm an expert in it. I'm a little bit hesitant, of course, maybe for obvious bias reasons, because, you know, even just viscerally kind of feeling that pain of, of having an occlusion cuff or uh, in, in, in the case of this condition, <laughs> having a, an internal occlusion. Um, there are potentially some concerns with autonomic, sympathetic, hyper excitability, let's say, with uh, vascular occlusions. So... Again, I, that's my biases. I'm a little bit hesitant of its application just for that. But it's, again, it's not like, it, it's, it's really only if it's used inappropriately. So just like anything else, you know, it's just a tool. It has to be used appropriately. When it's used appropriately, I think there's some good um, applications out there. Uh, but uh, uh, if you want to feel what, what, what FLIA feels like, yeah, a good way is to pump that cuff up and then go try to exercise and that's a yeah that's good that's, that's, that's kind of what i was getting at it's yeah. potentially getting a getting a feel for if you're suspected you might have it then so part of the testing that we're doing is applying a vascular occlusion for you know a short period a couple of minutes to kind of understand the nearest responses and uh, uh yeah i have no sympathy for the for the healthy athletes who go through this because they're like oh that, that really hurts like yeah yeah it does <laughs> imagine yeah. trying to do that all the time yeah. uh but you know it's it's not too bad and and uh yeah 
All right. So, I mean, we could have talked for a lot longer, I feel, about both Nears and uh, Flia, but uh, I actually have a, a, an athlete call in a couple of minutes. So let's do the rapid-fire questions in rapid-fire style. And the first one is, <laughs> what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Um, oh, I, I'm going to give you general answers to these. So in general, it's podcasts. And I'll put yours you know, right there, up there at the top of the list. Podcasts, there's no better way to listen to experts or just people you're interested in, in their own words, and I think that's the best resource there is out there. And what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Um, I've, I've talked about it a few times, but just consistency, I guess, you know, just showing up and that goes for training. It goes for daily habits. It goes for uh, relationships and families and loved ones, you know, just showing up. And, and uh, there's this kind of aspect of, um, you know, spending quality time with people, but maybe it's just kind of the, the, the quantity time, just again, just showing up and being with people building relationships. And then in the context of training, it's kind of the same thing. Like you can be hyper-focused on optimizing the one little interval protocol that you're using. But if you just show up and do the work day in, day out, and you know, you're kind of broadly following a system, but you have flexibility in that system. I think that's the, the yeah, I think that's the way to approach life and training. I, th I think that's a good uh, a good point after a, a pretty detailed discussion about a lot, lots of technical stuff, but it, it's always yeah. good to end on that note. I totally the agree. Let me let me say one more thing. Like we, we can talk about adding all of these sources of data and information. And and I think, yes, yeah, sometimes adding data will add precision. And you can really dial in, you know, where your thresholds are or where your training targets are. A lot of the time, though, I would suggest adding data does not add precision. It shows you how uncertain any one source of data are. It shows yeah. you the range of variability. And so what it adds is the flexibility to kind of adapt your you know, highly structured, highly optimized training plan to accommodate for all of those and understand all of those sources of, of variability. So yeah, yeah. I, I think that's quite important. Yeah. And finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? So again, in general, I have to say just clinician scientists out there, and that goes for coaches as well who are, do, who are, who are coaching and researching and applying the lessons in both directions. I think you know the, the the clinical or the high performance side and and the research side are not mutually exclusive, but they have different purposes. And and to be able to kind of navigate and synthesize both of those aspects, not to mention just the uh, superhero level time management skills that you know it requires to I don't know you know be a a doctor or a physiotherapist or a full time coach as well as to perform research. I think I I find that very impressive. Uh, obviously, that's kind of what I am striving towards. So yeah, in general, clinician scientists, a lot of respect for, for them. Yeah, that's a great answer. And uh, where can the listeners find you uh, online uh, if they want to follow you? Yeah, I, I think I'm most active on Twitter these days. Um, I think it's just my name, Jem Arnold, maybe Jem underscore Arnold, something like that. Uh, but yeah, Twitter is probably the best place. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Strava. Um, I have a blog, sparecycles.blog. I haven't updated it very often through the PhD, but uh, um, you know, there's some old uh, articles there that people love, like the the highly optimized little training interval articles. You know, people still like that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about any of this stuff, and especially if there's athletes kind of interested in flow limitation. Yeah, definitely reach out to me, and and I can hopefully point you to the right resources out there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jim. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I learned a lot and I hope to do it another time. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Michael. 
I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with uh, links to James' social media and uh, his blog. Uh, Related episodes, we mentioned quite a bunch of them. We mentioned devices and we mentioned a number of studies and other bits and pieces, uh, general media articles and uh, things that Jem has kindly sent me related to uh, flow limitation of the iliac artery. So there are a bunch of links. Go and check them out if you're interested in learning more. Uh, next Monday, uh, I will publish an interview where I was actually interviewed by Coach Coley Moore for the Empirical Cycling Podcast. Uh, if you're already a listener of the Empirical Cycling Podcast, you may have already heard this uh, interview. But if not, uh, you will get a chance next week here on that triathlon show as Coley kindly gave me permission to republish this interview. Uh, now we're quickly coming towards the end of the season and many many of you may have already started thinking about and planning for your next year if you know that you want to really improve your performance or you have some specific goals that you're working towards then really the number one way of making that happen in my opinion is to work with a good coach coaching is not just for pro athletes Uh, in fact if you're time limited then that's perhaps even more of a reason to work with a coach to make sure that you get most the most out of the time that you have for training so if you're interested in uh, discovering what it would could be like to work with a great coach then check out our coaching page on scientifictriathlon.com and contact us to learn more finally big thanks to our sponsors roca that you can find on roca.com check out their wetsuits trisuits swimskins goggles and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day wear to extreme action sports use the promo code that you can get on roca.com for slash tts to get 20 percent off your entire roca order and thank you to Senate. Use the Senate swim training to improve your technique, power, stamina, and most importantly, your swim training consistency. Get the special Senate TTS bundle, including the swim bench and a number of Senate training plans and on-demand workouts on senatesuintern.com forward slash TTS. And don't forget that you can try it at home for up to 30 days risk-free thanks to the great refund policy. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.